You are now listening to episode 79 of No Truce Barred, the best up-and-coming podcast on the internet. In this episode, I examined the complex legacy of President Barack Obama as it relates to Black America. And just how different was he from President George W. Bush and other presidents before Bush? Check out this episode. Take care, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to a brand new episode of No Truce Bard, the best up-and-coming podcast on the internet. And you already know who I am, your favorite edutainment podcaster, Hoi Kawaku Simmons. I want to thank you guys for all of the support in 2021. I also want to thank anybody that has contributed a piece of constructive criticism. Click that like button, left a comment, or more importantly, subscribe to the YouTube channel. So deep thanks to you guys. I took the month of January off, so I hope you guys had a great new year. I hope your uh, beginning of 2022 got off in an amazing manner, and I'm going to be rocking out with you guys for the rest of the year. As of right now, every second and fourth Wednesday, a new a new episode of No Truce Bard will be available. So twice a month, I'll be dropping two new episodes. Also, I'm going to be reintroducing Truth Sessions as well this year. I'm going to bring back Block Build as well. Uh, and I think those are kind of the two most recent updates. Shout out to everybody once again that have decided to follow the podcast. And without further ado, what do I want to do is to get into today's topic. So I was thinking about how do I want to approach Black History Month? Do I want to just regurg excuse me, regurgitate information about our heroes and sheroes of the past? Do I want to have maybe a debate about uh, the transatlantic slave trade or black people indigenous? And I wanted to take a different approach for Black History Month. Those of you that follow me on my old Facebook page and those of you who's followed this podcast know that I have an affinity for black history, but I, I wanted to take tonight and take it in a slightly different direction. I wanted to provide a needed yet complex perspective. I don't want to say critique, perspective of a beloved figure in the African-American community or those of you who get up in arms about using the term African-American, those of us in the black community, there's a leader that we really have a polarizing view of. We either really love him and we kind of have this sycophantic obsession with him or we're 100 percent castigating. We're always looking at all of the flaws and the negatives that go along with this particular individual. So I wanted to quickly assess and give my opinion on the complex history legacy of former President Barack Obama. And it's a really touchy subject because when you talk to many black people, we always want to hold him close. It's almost like it's a quasi deification of Obama. Obama is a person that if you're black, you cannot critique. Obama is a person that if you are part of the African-American community, sorry, folks that do not want me to use that term or the black community, he's a person that 
is almost beyond reproach. I remember when uh, during Obama's president presidency, you have people like uh, uh, Tavis Smiley and you had Dr. Cornell West, where they were really critical of many of the things that were happening under the presidency of uh, President Barack Obama. And Black America really got up in arms about the critique. But I believe that nobody is beyond reproach because if I'm going to have that same level of critique for Ronald Reagan, if I'm going to have that same level of critique for Richard Nixon, if I'm going to have that same level of critique for Bill Clinton, if I'm going to have that same level of critique for George W. Bush, then why should Barack Obama be exempt? But what I want to do briefly in this short episode, hopefully it's short, I don't want to hold you guys too long, I want to make that comparison. What were the pros of Obama's presidency? How do we view him? What did he have to deal with? What was the racism that Obama faced? But did he carry out some imperialistic tactics? But did he have kind of a distance from the black community? These are things that we have to talk about. So during Black History Month, I want to take one of our beloved leaders. And if you if you think that we should include Obama in Black History Month, or if you think we should not, that's not the point of this episode. The point of this episode is to take this figure and talk about him and discuss him. And I don't see anything wrong with that. One of the dangers with Barack Obama's presidency out the gate is that people had it in their mind that if a black man won, if Barack Obama won the presidency in 2008, then that was indicative of the fact that we're in a post-racial society when it couldn't be further from the truth. And many of the people that were covert racists on the low, whenever people would still talk about the plights and the struggles of black America, the, the, the easy rudimentary rebuttal is that you have a black president and you have no excuses. And the danger is that uh, under Obama's presidency, incidents between black Americans and police, fatal incidents shot up. Unemployment amongst black Americans went up. So the, 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 the contradiction is in one take, we have a black president. So therefore, black folks, be quiet. You have nothing to complain about because you have a black president. And now we're in the uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps argument, because if you have a black president, there's no more excuses. You can't fall on the crutch of systemic racism at this point. And it presented this illusion of that we've reached this age. And clearly, clearly we haven't. There were there were photos of people depicting Barack Obama as an as an uh an ape. Uh here in Richmond, there was a club owner that on the side of his building, I don't know if you guys have seen The Dark Knight, great movie that came out in 2008. But downtown on the side of his club, he had a photo of Barack Obama with the Joker scars. There were movies that came out like the, the Obama deception. There were people saying that Obama was the Antichrist and he was going to rush in the New World Order. These are the things he had to deal with. And one of the responses to the election of President Barack Obama from a lot of racists was that we have to take our country back. 
How can you be in a post-racial society if when you have a black president, the first response to that is that we have to take our country back. And you had the people, the Tea Partiers that were leading all of these marches. They were saying that President Obama was infringing upon their rights. So these are some of the things he had to deal with. I'm not going to, this episode is not going to totally romanticize nor totally vilify Barack Obama. It's just, let's look at him objectively. And even more so, to Black America, let's look at him objectively as well. He dealt with things with people uh, questioning the legitimacy of his birth. People are saying that he, he was a, a resident of Kenya. He was born in Kenya, and therefore he should not be the president. You know, this was spearheaded, ironically enough, by Donald Trump, who would go on to become president himself. But why did we have this romanticism of Barack Obama? Like, what was it that pulled Barack Obama in? Well, excuse me, pulled us into Barack Obama. What was it that when we saw Obama, we lost all vision? We put on the rose-colored shades to look at this country, to look at systemic racism with. Obama was indicative of hope. The past eight years under the Bush-Cheney administration, it ruined the economy, the housing market. We had a war that was totally unjustified because we never found any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And at this particular point in the nation's history, when we had John McCain running against Barack Obama, John McCain harkened back to the war hawks. It harkened back to the military-industrial complex. And what Obama represented was this juxtaposition with the GOP, the juxtaposition with this old order. He was like this herald of a new America. His slogan was, yes, we can. He galvanized a hope in not just Black Americans, but all Americans. He had a record number of young people come to the polls to vote for him. And this, this energy that he brought was something that we really haven't seen in American politics. And then I think it was a bit of, of novelty. It was to see, will this president, will this black man truly become president? And he did. He won. And, and honestly, I didn't think he was going to beat Hillary Clinton in the primaries, but he ended up doing it. He actually won. And there were things that other things that came up during his presidency where a lot of races wanted to use against Obama, uh, such as his relationship with Reverend Jeremiah Wright out of Chicago. And if you're familiar with Reverend Jeremiah Wright, he is very outspoken on things that most pastors aren't. If you look at any of Reverend Jer uh, Jeremiah Wright's former sermons, and unfortunately, he suffered from a stroke, and I think he has paralysis in the left side of his body now. But if you look at any of his sermons, he would touch on subjects like, you know, uh, war crimes, foreign policy, systemic racism, police brutality, 
all of these things in the church, in the pulpit. And these are things that most pastors, these are things that most pastors are going to avoid like the flu. And now you still do have certain pastors that are going to be outspoken, like uh, Reverend Barbara out of North Carolina. I really, I really love him. I think he's a phenomenal leader uh, out there in North Carolina. But nonetheless, his relationship with, uh, uh, excuse me, his relationship with uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, pardon me, I had a kind of a brain freeze right there. His relationship with Jeremiah Wright would be one of the things that racists would try to use to show that President Obama was racist as well. And so what he had to do to save face, he actually had to kind of distance himself from Jeremiah Wright during the, and it happened during the first term of his campaign. You know, they, they uh, many people like on Fox News, people like Bill O'Reilly, uh, Sean Hannity, Michael Savage, they tried to also use his relationship to, uh, to Bill Ayers as well, um, who they claimed was uh, a domestic terrorist. Uh, as well to kind of say, hey, we should not have Barack Obama in the White House. He was called a socialist. So I wanted to bring that up because in this critique, and there's going to be juicy stuff later on that I talk about, but in this particular critique, I don't want it to seem like I'm being biased or unbalanced because I recognize that during his presidency, President Obama had to deal with things that no other president in the history of this country has ever had to deal with. He did. And he he wanted to do, like, for example, when he introduced the idea of the Affordable Care Act, I was all behind it. America has one of the most screwed up healthcare systems. There are people that go in for surgeries, people that go in uh, for dental work that end up thousands upon thousands of dollars in the hole. And yeah, he didn't give us a, a, a free healthcare, but I feel like the Affordable Care Act is a step in that direction. And the beautiful thing about it is that it allows so many different workers to have access to healthcare. I don't care how you try to phrase it, healthcare is a human right. And those that argue against that, you have to be some sort of sociopath to believe that healthcare is not a human, human right. Just like access to water is a human right, healthcare is as well. And if you are a business owner, there's a symbiotic relationship between of course, your the health of your employees and the proliferation or the preponderance of your business. If you have healthy employees and people that can contribute their best physical labor, intellectual labor, whatever it is, it ultimately benefits your company as well. It ultimately benefits society as a whole for people to be healthier unless you're a place that monetizes off of people being ill and people being sick. And the Republicans really tried their hardest to block the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. 
And even during Trump, one of the things that Trump ran on, ironically enough, a lot of his constituents, the people that voted for him, benefited from the Affordable Care Act. But the vitriol of racism is so entrenched in this country that just to one up or, or spite a black president, they were willing to vote for a president that was going to repeal something that was actually helping and benefiting them. That's how entrenched racism is in this country. That's how entrenched the racism against President Barack Obama was. That people came out in droves to support the toxic rhetoric of Donald Trump to vote for him. And he's saying he's going to take away something that's helping out the masses of poor people throughout this country who may not have been able to afford health care. And this was in during the Trump presidency. That's, you know, so it shows you that. Now, I titled this episode, Looking at Obama, Was He a Hero or Disappointment as it Relates to Black America? Obama did something that many Democrats do. Democrats recognize the power of the black vote. Democrats recognize the power of black voters, of black constituents, when we mobilize to go out to the polls. Whenever there's an election and it's tight and it's close, the Democrats come to the African-American community first. They pander to us in many ways. Some of them are offensive. When Hillary Clinton was running for president against Donald Trump in 2016, she was on an episode of The Breakfast Club. She pulls out a bottle of hot sauce out of her purse. The Democrats, they claim to be liberal. They, came, they claim to have the agape love for oppressed groups, for African-Americans. But when they come to us, they do things that are so overtly stereotypically racist and they don't realize it or maybe they do and they just don't care so they come to our communities that way when joe biden was running and when bernie sanders was in the lead and this is in the democratic primaries when bernie sanders was in the lead and they finally came to south carolina joe biden went to a rib shack now i mention this not to make you laugh if it does that's cool but Democrats will do things to pander to the black community, and they think we they think of our value so cheaply. Here's the caveat: I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat. If anything, I'm an independent. This is just my take, and I'm leading somewhere with this. Obama would do the same thing, but he had a, a more polished way of pa pandering to the black community. He was saying Al Green. He would hang out with Jay-Z. All of these different things to pull us in to, to, to get our vote. When they're running, when they're on the campaign trail, they talk to African-Americans. They go to the black churches. They get the black senators on their side. The mayors. The business owners. To come out, the, the black pastors, to come out and to get black people to go to the polls for them. 
because black people vote overwhelmingly Democrat. Here's the problem. They pander to us, but then when they're in office, they turn their backs on black America. Or what they do, they say we're going to pass a bill to help minorities, thereby they help black people. But when you pander for our vote, you don't try to go to minorities, you overtly come to African Americans to help you. We see how powerful Stacey Abrams was in Georgia when she got, and she deserves the credit for that, when she got Georgia to go blue for Joe Biden. They come to us then, but when they're in office, they turn their back on us. And I think the problem is that black America feels like we don't have an option. We feel like we have to vote for the Democrats because the Republicans definitely aren't for us. And so the Democrats become the lesser of the two evils. Now, let me also put this out here. I think voting is important, not just at on the presidential level, but in your local municipalities as well, it's imperative that you go out and vote to know who your superintendents are, to know who your aldermen or your councilmen are, uh, how, how money in your city or your town or county is being allocated. Voting is super important. But there is a problem with the two-party system. There is a problem with the two-party dictatorship because any sort of person that wants to run for the presidential seat they have to go between these two parties, and it's really polarizing. And Barack Obama, he did the same thing. When Obama got into office, he did the exact same thing. He told black people what they wanted to hear. He sung to Al Green. He took photo ops with LeBron and Jay-Z and, and Jamie Foxx and whoever else. Have them come to the White House. You remember the, the, the photo with Rick Ross, Pushy C, and all these different people in the Oval Office. But when it came for a tangible plan for Black America, they turned their backs. But keep this in mind, the wealth that America has now was produced from the fact that enslaved Black people produced, they had a labor force where they did not have to pay for 200 plus years, and the wealth uh, built from the, the labor of African Americans made the United States an economic powerhouse. Black people came here, well, there was uh, actually, we always say 1619, but there was actually an earlier group of Africans that came over here a little bit before 1619, and then in, in the Carolinas, the Spaniards had a really small colony in the 1580s, I believe, with um, some enslaved Africans. But 1619 is the one that's documented, so that's the one that we go with, you know, at Fort at, at Fort Comfort. So that's the one that we go with. But when you look at it from 1619 and really doing the, the influx of, of enslaved Africans being imported once you get to the like the 1670s and definitely the 1700s in places like Charleston, South Carolina, here in Virginia, Maryland, Annapolis, these different places, New Orleans, you have so many black people coming in this country. And aside from the white Americans, excuse me, the uh, people that would have came out of, out of Great Britain, because you know that the reason why there was so many, so little Africans that came to the United States 
is because the British got into the slave trade 100 years after everybody else. So most Africans would have went into Latin America, which constitutes, you know, the Caribbean islands, Brazil, uh, Mexico. And matter of fact, the Dutch, the Dutch man of war that uh, brought this, the 20 some odd Negroes in August of 1619, they actually uh, hijacked a ship that was going to carry this human cargo to Mexico. I believe it was Veracruz and brought them here to Virginia. So when you look at black Americans, we've been here before many European immigrants came over. Now, of course you had, uh, during the American revolution, you had um, some German mercenaries that were over here. Uh, you had some assistance from the fr fr French as well, but reality for the most part, you're talking about Anglo-Saxons, that would have came from the lower classes of Great Britain. You know, for example, Richard Hacklute, others, um, the royalty in England at the time, they had a big issue of vagrancy. And initially what Jamestown, this colony over here was supposed to be, was a dumping ground for the unwanted, the dregs of English society, uh, prostitutes, debtors. This was supposed to just be a dumping ground for them. So you had in, 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 initially indentured servants and kind of like the unwanted of the British Isles or, or, or uh, England coming over here to form this colony of Virginia. So we started at 1619. And then, like I said, the, the influx, the, the apex, in my opinion, and some historians may disagree with the importation of Africans into Virginia prior to uh, or into, excuse me, the colonies uh, prior to 1808. Was, would have been like the 1670s, 1680s through the 1700s. Huge influx of, of Africans. So I say all that to say is that if we're looking at America, black people, along with those white folks that would have came from uh, the British Isles, would be the oldest Americans here. And my point being is this. You look at the labor that black people have contributed to this country, you look at the fact that black folks have fought in every single war in this country. Uh, I'm, uh, one of my great uncles who passed on, rest in peace, uh, he participated in World War II. I know people that participated in Vietnam. I had a relative that was in the Iraq war uh, when we first went over there in 2002. So when you look at it from that perspective, why can you pander for our vote? But black people have per participated in every war. Black labor has contributed to wealth of a, of a powerful empire the world has never seen, unlike the world has ever seen. But when we ask, hey, can we have something? The response is, well, no, we can't do nothing directly for black people. But we've seen the Japanese get reparations. We've seen things overtly done for the LGBTQ community. We've seen things done uh, for brothers and sisters coming over here seeking, seeking refuge, excuse me, coming from places like El Salvador, uh, places like uh, 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 parts of Mexico, excuse, excuse me, as well. We've seen that. So certain groups can get overt concessions done, but you come to black Americans 
and you ask us for your for, for our vote to support you, to get behind you, to endorse you. But you treat us like we're not Americans. You treat us like we're second class citizens. You treat us like our wants, our ills, our problems. They don't matter. You have this. Uh, oh, don't touch it. You treat us almost like a pariah. And yeah, I'm talking to the Democrats when it comes to addressing real tangible issues to address systemic racism, the wealth gap inequality. You step back like it's the flu, the flu excuse me. But any other group of people can get things done overtly and, and specifically tailored to their needs from the Democrats, except for black folks. And how is it racist to address something where we know from slavery to Jim Crow uh, to housing rates to land subsidies? We know black people have been adversely affected, but we serve on the military more than anyone else. Black people are, the, are going into the military along with our Hispanic brothers and sisters as well. For a long time, it was a lot of your poor and a lot of black people that were going to Vietnam in the Korean War, that were in Desert Storm, that went to World War II. And matter of fact, when black soldiers, black soldiers in World War II were treated worse than the German criminals that we captured. They got treated better and ate better than the black soldiers that were risking their lives for this country. So how is it we can risk our lives, we can be enslaved, we can go through all sorts of systemic issues, and then we can come out in droves to get your officials elected into these positions. But when it, when it comes to doing something specifically for the African-American community, all backs are turned and it's racist to do so. But it's not racist to pander to black people more than any other demographic when you want to get elected. And I think that's the problem. That's the quagmire as black voters that we find ourselves in. Everyone wants our vote, but nobody wants to do nothing for us. And look, I understand the president is the president of the American people. I'm not dumb. I understand that. The, the, the hypocrisy for me is that we see things done specifically for other groups. And it's okay. It's like that argument falls null and void when it comes to other groups of people. The Democrats can kind of find a way to do things for them. But they don't pander to them as much as they do black Americans for our vote. And Barack Obama did that. And so, like I said, I, I support voting. I'm going to vote. I vote, in, I vote in every single election. But I just think people are getting tired. And this, is, this goes beyond black and white. I've had conversations with so many people that are fed up with the Republicans. I've had so many conversations with people that are fed up with the Democrats. I've had so many people that have told me, I'm not going to vote in 2024 which could be dangerous, but people are tired of these parties because they don't do anything for anyone unless you're a corporation and you got the money to grease the pockets or send a check to Capitol Hill. But we're the ones that vote for you.
And not all politicians are bad. Not all politicians don't care about their constituents. But a whole heck of a lot of you don't. A whole lot of you will sit with Goldman Sachs before you sit with a workers union, before you sit with fire, a firefighters uh, union organization, before you sit with police officers, before you sit with teachers, before you sit with you know single parents or single mothers that are going through it out here. The people that come out, the real people that keep the country going, that come out and vote for you, you all will not give none of us a seat at your table, but somebody from Exxon can get that seat at your table and you'll hear them out one-on-one. And Americans are tired. We want alternatives, more political parties. These are conversations I've been hearing from people. People are just tired. So in that regard, Obama's not different from the Republican that was in office before him. Obama's not different from Bill Clinton. And this is what this is what is this is why the Republicans are assholes towards black people just off jump. They're like, hey, we're gonna let you know. We are, by and large, you know, white supremacists. They're going to let you know, by and large, this is how we feel. It's in your face. It's like the Democrats want to kick you in the nuts and they give you a hug. That's what it, that's what it feels like. What's the difference? I don't see real differences. I mean, granted, Obama, one of the things I will commend Obama on is that he's really been an, uh, an opponent of mass incarceration. And I, re I respect that. Obama was definitely an opponent of mass incarceration. But let me give him a little bit of a little bit more bail here. The president is coming into a system. This system was there before the president It'll be there after the president is gone and we've elected another president. And what I mean by system, we're talking about structures of power that can monetize certain things that may sound abhorrent to most of us. That's what we're talking about when we're speak speaking about systems. With Obama speaking out against mass incarceration, it doesn't put a dent on the fact that we still have privately owned prisons. Uh, there are counties in part of the country where they actually will sue if they don't have enough bodies to fill up the beds in there because that's how they make their money. This impacts laws where drug laws uh, can adversely affect certain demographics of people to give them trumped up charges to give them more jail time to occupy that cell. That way, that privately owned prison makes money. There's a list of companies that get products made from prison labor. One of my professors that I had at VCU, he told me that at a specific point in time, some of the furniture in some of the offices at VCU was made from prison labor. So on one end, we have a president that's trying to be progressive and speak out about this uh this problem, this perennial issue with mass incarceration, but then at the same time, so many companies are interwoven and make money 
off of this caustic, toxic, and racist system that feeds off of certain demographics of people trapped in abject poverty to then have a new form of slave labor in the form of mass incarceration. So you can speak against it, but some of your constituents are profiting from it. So I do on a superficial surface level, I applaud, but speaking out and petty concessions doesn't put a dent in the fact that there is legislative racism going on that is allowing certain groups of people to be more heavily incarcerated than others. And not only more heavily incarcerated, but there you can buy stock in, in prisons. That's an issue for me. That's a problem. It's a huge problem. What is my other problem? I knocked my mic off. I'm getting I'm getting heated. Getting I'm getting, you know, I'm getting ready here. But another problem for me with Obama is that when Bush was in office, we were real staunch critics of Bush because we said, you're a war criminal. We talked about Dick Cheney. We talked about uh, George W. Bush. We talked about how the people in Iraq were treated during that war. We talk about the countless amount of money and resources that was spent in Afghanistan. We talk about this. You know, there have been people, scholars like Professor Noam Chomsky, that have written tremendous articles on the things that happened uh, in during the Bush administration in Iraq. And we've been critical of that. This goes back to the juxtaposition of President Barack Obama and President George W. Bush, the, the, the juxtaposition, because we're looking at Obama and we're like, wow, okay, so we have someone brand new here. This is a person that is going to usher in a new order, a new way of doing things. He stated, I'm going to quote to close Guantanamo Bay. This was something that Barack Obama ran on because Guantanamo Bay had unethical ways of handling their detainees. But what was one of the first things that Obama does in office? He extends the invasive, somewhat unconstitutional Patriot Act that George W. Bush set up. We're going to get the troops out. Well, didn't happen. And once again, this episode isn't really meant to be a foreign policy episode. Because when you talk about what's, what's going on in Afghanistan, this is really complex because it goes all the way back, pardon me, uh, to the early 1980s when um, we were we were basically arming uh, the Mujahideen to fight against Russia. And it's a lot of other stuff that goes on with that. But anyway, we're like, this guy is going to be different. There will not be any war crimes. There will not be any things that are kind of like unscrupulous done by this president. <laughs> Was Obama an imperialist? Well, 
I think every president is an imperialist. And I think every president of every single country, to a degree, is an imperialist. The problem is the United States, we kind of hold the stage, right? And we have the loudest voice in the room. But under that, we've done things that people have been critical of. You know, so, you know, you look at, for example, when you look at the Reagan administration, under Reagan, you had the, the Iran-Contra scandal under Reagan, where we supported these Contras and with money of illegal arms being sold in Iran and we're arming these particular Contras in Nicaragua for U.S. interests. People were very critical of that. People were very critical of Af Afghanistan in the 80s as well. People were critical, like I said, I was talking about the, uh, the, the Mujahideen, which eventually would become Al-Qaeda. These are things people were critical of. In 1999, President Bill Clinton supported the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army. The president of the Kosovo Liberation Army was notorious for rape, oppression, killing uh, many Serbs. And yet we found a way to fund this particular faction. Ethnic cleansing occurred under the KLA against many non-Muslim people in Serbia. We're critical of George W. Bush in Iraq. When you look at George W. Bush, once again, there were no weapons of mass destruction. And the argument was that since uh, Saddam Hussein had actually used biological warfare on his own people, this is proven, uh, he actually did it against the Kurds as well. The argument or the justification for going into Iraq is that this guy will uh, provide those weapons to those terrorist cells and networks. And so some would argue, hey, that was the intel that was provided at the time. And then some would argue that there was monetary interest, contracts, certain companies that could go there, make money in, in lieu in the midst of all of this. So we were really, we've been really critical of past presidents. So what about Obama? Well, under the Obama presidency, drones were a big thing. In the effort against the war on terror, drones were fired. During the Obama presidency, over 563 drone strikes occurred with over 3,000 casualties. There were weddings in Yemen where accidentally, or as far as collateral damage goes, drones were dropped that actually missed the intended target and killed women and children. Many of these drone strikes involved the deaths of civilians, and it wasn't abnormal for the primary target of these particular strikes to be missed. 
Hmm. Ready for change? Yes, we can. Doesn't really seem like a lot of change. It seems like the same military first order of the day. I have to look at this from the perspective of contracts of selling weapons to different regimes around the world that our country is able to monetize. I said earlier that corporations and certain groups were able to have access to these politicians like we aren't. Once again, it goes back to the fact that we have two political parties that control politics, political discourse. And all of our votes have to go through one of those two uh, parties. And that becomes a problem. Because when you have only two outlets, anybody that could change anything has to go through them. The Democrats and Republicans have it so ossified and locked that you have people like Dr. Ron Paul, who is really a libertarian, he had to run through the Republican Party in order to uh, participate in the primaries to uh, potentially uh, become the person that would have ran against Barack Obama. During the 2016 election and again in 2020, Bernie Sanders, who's an independent and a Democratic Socialist, had to run through the Democratic Party in order to have a chance. The last independent that really had a chance of becoming president was Ross Perot back in the early 90s, but he was a billionaire and he could just buy up all sorts of airtime. The fact that we don't really have any other options is almost, as I love to say, like a two-party dictatorship. And when you have that, certain nefarious things, certain nefarious ways to make money can actually happen because there's a biopoly on the political system in this country. So before I wrap this up, I wanna take another look at Obama and his views on Africa. So there was a conference where Obama said that African countries cannot continue to blame colonialism on their problems, that now they have to take responsibility and accountability for the economic states of their country. He omitted the fact that there were 72 years of imperialism on the continent of Africa. When you look at the Berlin Conference, which was started in 1884, this was uh, started by these European powers that wanted to carve up Africa. And after World War One, after World War One, you really start to see uh, borders within the continent of Africa that were taking different groups that were not considered part of the same nation and kind of grouping them together. Uh, you know, you, you've seen the creation of different countries in the Middle East as well after World War One and the ultimate fall of the Ottoman Empire as well. You know, that was around that was considered the sick man of, of Europe or what have you. Right. So you see these different things occur. 72 years, the first country. OK, so minus let's minus two countries, Liberia, which 
was formed by America under President James Monroe because the capital was called Monrovia. And actually in Liberia, a lot of the first Africans that would have came from the West to Liberia would have came out of Virginia, shout out, um, as well. And there was a whole rift there between the people that came from here and the indigenous people that were living in what would become Liberia. And you had Ethiopia that fought the Italians. Um, and matter of fact, quick, quick fun fact, Haile Selassie actually came to America and he got the help. Um, he got the help of, oh my goodness, I'm forgetting. How am I forgetting this brother's name right now? I cannot remember his name. Oh my goodness. So here it is. I got, I had another brain fart, <laughs> but with Libya, excuse me, Liberia and Ethiopia were the two independent countries, right? This is prior to 1957 with Ghana gaining its, its uh, independence under Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, fun fact, like I was about to say, when uh, the, the Italians were trying to invade Ethiopia, Haile Selassie got the help of Adam Clayton Powell in finding black uh, air fighters to help uh, Ethiopia in its battle against the Italians. So that's, I think that's like a, a really cool, uh, fun fact to know. But anyway, when you're looking at imperialism, you're looking at the fact that these countries were not allowed autonomy. These countries were not allowed to have their own economies. The British who, so for example, you have like Anglophone Africa and you have Francophone Africa. Anglophone Africa would be the countries that are primarily English speaking in Africa. And you have the uh, Francophone countries, which would be like, you know, your Senegal's, your Gambia's, um, primarily your, your, uh, your Algeria's as well. Um, those would be like your French speaking countries. And then you will have like your Anglophone countries, which would be like your Nigeria, Ghana's, right? Or what have you. Um, the British, they practice indirect rules. So essentially what that would mean is that they would put a puppet leader into place to rule. So it's like a black ruler, but he's just serving the interests of the British 100%. So the economies of Africa for decades and even afterwards were adversely impacted. There were companies like Firestone others that carried out some not too good practices as it relates to slavery, child labor, in order to make profit, in order to extrapolate the mineral wealth in Africa. One of the most obscene things to happen is that the Democratic Republic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo uh, was declared the Congo Free State. And essentially, the Belgium, uh, the people of Belgium took power over the Democratic Republic of the Congo under King Leopold II. Under King Leopold II, there's a great book called uh, King Leopold's Ghost. Check that out if you get a chance. But under King Leopold II, over 15 million Africans died from violence, starvation, disease, and a host of other issues. The Belgians the Belgian people and soldiers that were there, Leopold never stepped foot in the Congo, but he funded a lot of the companies that would have gone there. Uh, a lot of the uh, 
oppression that would have happened there as well, but they had work quotas. So if you didn't get your amount of rubber, if you didn't get your amount of, I believe, like bulk site, but more so rubber, you got a hand or either a foot cut off. There are pictures with uh, soldiers that would use the severed hands of people there to scare other people into meeting their work quota or else you could lose a hand. Meeting your work quota or else you could lose a foot. This is the sort of oppression, genocide, and turpitude that happened under the Belgians via uh, imperialism in the Congo. When you look at King Leopold II, you have to put him right there with Joseph Stalin, who where apparently 20 million people died in the gulags. You have to put him there with Adolf Hitler, where 6 million Jews met their horrible fatal deaths in concentration camps. This is just one instant. You had the Kafir's War in South Africa. 1896, the British go into the Ashanti Empire and essentially take it over. In Sudan, you had uh, the Mahdi, who was trying to fight against the British. You had uh, Ahmad, I'm always going to mess this guy's name up, but he was the Muslim that led a resistance against the French. Uh, Ahmadou Torre, I think that's his name. If you watch this, you can correct me. It slips my mind at the moment. There were different resistances that were occurring on the continent. I say all this to say that I find it disingenuous because I know President Barack Obama is an extremely intelligent man. I find it disingenuous that he would have that attitude towards Africa. Knowing the history, knowing the circumstances that put a lot of these countries in this adverse position. How do I view Barack Obama? Very interesting question. President, President Barack Obama was extremely complex. There are a lot of different variables when you talk about his presidency. Was he for the people? I think to the best of his ability. Was he for black people? No. Did he try to do things to help? Everybody, including black people, yes. The Affordable Care Act was a brilliant idea. Did he make mistakes during his presidency? Yes. Did he carry out tactics that adversely affected people in Yemen, Somalia, and other parts of the world? Definitely. Barack Obama's a human, brilliant human, and for what it's worth, was a pretty decent president, but it doesn't absolve him from imperialistic tactics. It doesn't absolve him for just pandering to black people for their vote and for the most part, turning a deaf ear to their pain. Did he deal with racism? Yes, he did. A whole lot of it intricate position to be in. We want to demonize him or we want to almost deify him.
I think Obama's legacy is one of trying to implement change, but realizing that there's a system in place. And even with being an idealist and even trying to do different things, you still have to capitulate to that system at a certain point. This has been episode 79 of No Truce Bard. I want to thank you for listening to this episode. Also, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is No Truce Bard Podcast. Once again, thank you for watching this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you follow me on Instagram at the T-H-E underscore No Truce Bard Podcast. Once again, thank you. Take care. And until next time, peace.